have your Bibles, why don't you turn together with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. As we pick back up where we left off in Luke's Gospel. Last week we looked at chapter 19 and went down as far as verse 27. This morning, if we can draw your attention to verse 28 in Luke 19, and we're actually going to go down as far as verse 44. And if you do need a Bible while we're turning there, the guys are in the aisle. If you need a copy of the scripture to follow along, just hold your hand up and they'll get a Bible over to your seat to you so you can follow along during our Bible study. Luke 19 in verse 28. And if you'll stand together with me out of respect for the scriptures as we read our text for our message this morning. Luke 19, beginning in verse 28, regarding the life of Jesus, it tells us, And when he had said this, referring back to the prior parable, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he drew near Bethpage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. And then they brought him to Jesus and threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. The other gospels tell us at this point they began to put down palm branches as well. Verse 37, And then as he went now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works which they had seen, saying, Blessed! is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And Father, we lift before you the word of God this morning and we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to just assist us right now that he would prepare us internally in our heart and mind and soul and spirit that we would be receptive and able to hear your voice speaking into our lives very clearly that we would see things about Jesus and understand more of what it means to grow in the grace and knowledge of Him as our Lord and Savior. Please help us, Lord. We need Your help to understand the Word of God and, and we want Your Holy Spirit 
to be the one who ministers and teaches us this morning. Even as you stood on this earth, Jesus, you by your risen and resurrected life right now would be our teacher. And that it would be you by your spirit speaking personally and and directly into each and every one of our lives in this place this morning. So bless your word, Lord. You know what we're asking and we look forward to what you'll say in Jesus' wonderful name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think the passage in front of us as we look at it together this morning really clearly deals with the importance of being responsive to what the Lord Jesus is doing. It becomes very evident that was the case in that day, that there were some who were responsive to what Jesus was doing, the two disciples specifically, who he kind of sends on this uh, rather peculiar little mission that they go out on and they cooperate with and see the work of God and come back and have a chance to participate in it and experience what the Lord was doing in and through their lives. And then, of course, there are those who ultimately bring Jesus to the place of tears, who were completely dull-hearted and, and unsensitive to what the Lord was doing in this critical hour and this specific day in human history as prophecy was unfolding right in their presence, and yet they were totally missing the Messiah right before their eyes and recognizing who Jesus really was and, and what he really was doing in that very hour. Now, Remember the background, because it does have some pertinence to where we're going this morning. We had just saw last week Jesus teach to the people a parable. And that parable particularly was about a king who was rightfully ruling over his own inheritance, an inheritance that his father had given to him. It was his rightful inheritance, and he was the proper king and the one who should rule. And that parable was given to illustrate how we live in relationship to the rulership of Jesus Christ over our lives. Whether or not we will permit Jesus to reign over us and submit to his lordship and let him really rule over us. And we saw in that parable how those who accept Jesus' rule and they embrace the rule and reign of Jesus over their lives, such individuals like those portrayed in that passage will be productive, faithful servants of the Lord while they're waiting for him to return and set up his literal reign upon this earth. There were those as well, it seems, we saw that they may be servants of the Lord, but inwardly, quite honestly, they, they kind of resent the rulership of Jesus Christ over their lives. In the same way, certain people just, they really struggle uh, and, and they really wrestle within over the authority of someone else being in their life and someone actually being in charge of them and telling them what to do. And, and there are those who know Jesus Christ, I believe, as Savior, but yet there's still this inward resentment and, and a little bit of resistance toward the lordship of Jesus Christ. And because of that, there's kind of this sort of willful, rebellious spirit within that still wants to kind of call the shots and, and they hear what Jesus says, but they kind of still want to do their own thing and, and chart their own course. And that results, as we saw with the one man in our story, in living a wasteful life and being a lazy follower of the Lord and being someone who's unproductive and, and that leads to res the result of just regret and wasted time and wasted opportunity and then of course ultimately we saw those in the passage who refused, literally refused altogether the reign of the king and said we will not have this man to reign over us and they just utterly rejected altogether the reign of the king and we saw that one day those who reject and refuse the reign of Jesus altogether 
will be ultimately judged very severely when Jesus returns as king of kings. Now, it's at this predetermined point in Jesus' public ministry that he now chooses to willfully, purposely allow the people of Israel to finally see him for who he was, and that is their Messiah and their king. And it's right after this parable about the rulership of this king that Jesus now publicly presents himself on this day in history as the king and the Messiah of Israel, God's chosen people. Look with me again back in verse 26, telling us that when he had said this, the prior parable, he then went on ahead, moving forward as we've been watching, going up to Jerusalem. So we're now in the last week of Jesus's life, the last week of his public ministry, this is the Sunday prior to Resurrection Sunday when Jesus will raise from the dead. So we're less than one week now throughout the rest of Luke's gospel. We're less than one week from the sufferings and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. So as we look at the remainder of Luke's gospel, understand we're all within this last week, the events and things that are taking place. We're exactly one week at this point now from Resurrection Sunday. We often call this Palm Sunday. That's the account that we're looking at this morning. And notice it says they, as they went up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem. Part of that is geographic because it's on a high elevation. In fact, it's about 2,500 feet or so above sea level. So you always ascend as you go up to Jerusalem. And this day, Jesus is going to do something quite different than anything we've seen Jesus do up to this point. He's going to do something rather unique. He's going to take direct control of the events that are happening. And during this time, being in complete control and coordinating everything, directing affairs, Jesus, as we're going to see, is going to openly and purposely allow himself, in fact, even invite for himself to be identified, recognized, accepted, and worshipped as King of Kings and as the Savior and the Messiah of Israel. Now, up to this point, remember, as you look at the Gospels, what's Jesus been doing? He's always refusing that. And he's always, it seems, kind of resisting and, 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 and refusing recognition and worship and asking even people directly sometimes to refrain. Remember, you heard Jesus say things like, my hour has not yet come. They would want to hail him as king or acknowledge him or go and tell everybody. And Jesus said, no, no, my hour has not yet come. And in fact, Jesus would even say things on occasion like, see to it, don't, don't tell anybody. You know, Jesus would never make it in our modern day of Christian ministry. You know, he wasn't into public demonstration and, and uh, public advertisement. Look, stop telling people. Don't tell people. You know, it's might the opposite today. But Jesus, everything was, was perfectly in tune with what? The Father's plan. Now, on this day, very different, Jesus, through his actions, now he goes way to the opposite end of the spectrum and he actually invites, through his own personal actions and control of the events, he invites and he accepts now the recognition of who he is as king of kings and he will receive worship for the first time now. The question is why? The answer is very simple because this is now the appointed day that the Father had determined in his will that this would happen. This is now the appointed hour. We read much in the Bible about an appointed day, an appointed hour, when God schedules things for happening on that specific day and that specific hour. This was the predetermined day 
that God from all of eternity had planned that this particular event would take place publicly and Jesus always lived and acted in harmony with the will of the Father. He always did everything each day of his daily events and every hour obediently to what the Father's plan was. That's why often I think we see Jesus, it says before daylight, he would slip away from the crowds and his disciples and he'd go seek the Father because he was getting marching orders for that day. Because you know, once life begins, people start to demand things and pull up you and you need to do this and, and we got to take care of that. And, and, and Jesus, he never, never seems stressed out. It bugs me about him. He never seems stressed out. He always got done what needed to get done. And at times it seems Jesus would be pulled that we need to do this, we need to do that. Jesus said, no, no, we need to go to the next village. And Jesus lived his life according to the marching orders he received from the Father every day and every hour. And you know, as we seek the Lord, that's why it's good to seek the Lord in the morning. You have a sense of, of being insensitive to the Spirit. And Lord, this is what you want to do for this day. And not that we shouldn't respond, because sometimes it's a divine appointment. Interruptions can be divine appointments. But there are other times when interruptions, we have to be careful, may be something where the enemy is trying to distract us from doing the thing we're really supposed to do that day. And it's wise to be sensitive to the Lord. And Jesus now is doing this because this is the exact appointed day in history. He wouldn't allow it prior to this time. And it's a good reminder for us that the Lord is always on time. He's always on time. And it's a good reminder for us, too, that Jesus never does anything, hear me, prematurely. Never. Now, we a lot of times get anxious and we try and make things happen prematurely. I think sometimes as Christians, even in the zealousness to share our faith, we try and convert people prematurely. And I know that almost sounds contradictory. We, I've just shared the gospel. This is the day of your salvation. You know what I mean? Just, and we just pray right now and, and the tragedy in doing that is, you know, if you can convince somebody to enter the kingdom, somebody else can probably convince them to just jump right back out. We've got to be careful. Well, we don't want to try and make anything happen prematurely. And it's hard because we want things to happen at a certain time frame. And, and whether it's sharing the gospel or, or, you know, meeting and marrying someone or getting a job or some door opening up or some season of ministry and where we're at. Look, not prematurely. Stay in step with the, with the Lord's plan. And then when that exact day comes, by the same token, we don't want to be behind the Lord. We want to be right on time with what the Lord is doing. That's what we see Jesus. His timing may not be what we expect, but it's always perfect. Because it is always at the appointed hour when it's best as it pertains to his plan and his purposes. And he sees the big picture, we don't. And that's why we've got to be sensitive to letting the Lord do things in his day and in his hour. Verse 29 says, It came to pass, as he's going up to Jerusalem, that he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet. And then he sent, it says, two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you. And as you enter, you're going to find a colt, he says, on which no one has ever sat before. Loose it, untie it, and bring it back here. And if anyone asks you, hey, why are you loosing that? You should say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So as the account unfolds for us, the plan of God taking place at the proper time, at the right prescribed day and hour, take notice that Jesus is com in complete control of every little detail, event, and scenario that's happening. 
It tells us here that as they were heading to Jerusalem, they came around the area of the Mount of Olives, which sits just east of Jerusalem. It overlooks the Kidron Valley. And they come to these two particular villages mentioned here, which are small villages that kind of sit right on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And take notice with me, if you would, there in verse 29. First of all, you see Jesus' pattern in ministry and in his works. It tells us that Jesus sent people out to serve and work for him. How? in pairs you look at the end of verse 29 there it says he sent two of his disciples with sort of this instruction to go out and accomplish this mission or work that he had them to do luke chapter 10 tells us that one time before when jesus sent them out on a short-term kind of missions trip the 70 went out and it says he sent them out two by two the idea is in pairs and in partnership and can i just say as we look in the scriptures this seems to be jesus's pattern for ministry. This seems to be the way that the Lord does his work. Jesus does not do work through solo, maverick, independent spirited type individuals. Jesus accomplishes his work, it seems, through pairs, through partnerships, through two people coming together and cooperatively accomplishing something, or for that matter, you know, sometimes more. But but again, not independent workers, but people partnering in his work. I'm always leery of people who want to become independent workers and you know they're 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 solo and they don't need an attachment to say that always makes me uncomfortable because it's not the pattern of the Lord. The pattern of the Lord, which quite honestly shows tremendous wisdom, his model is having a partner alongside of us. Because having a partner in the Lord's work or the Lord's ministry provides accountability, it provides assistance, and all these things that are essential to remaining safe and having really the Lord's ability to accomplish things successfully in a safe and fruitful manner. And that partnership can be a spouse, and I see that in my life. I got married very young, and I, and I recognize that part of the purpose for that was God brought me a partner that I needed to be there in my life, in my wife, to, to provide accountability to me. As a young man, and God had a plan and a purpose for me in ministry, God said, you know what, you need a wife to safeguard you, to protect you so that you stay balanced, and, and it guards you from certain temptations that could be dangerous to you. So God brought me very a, a wife, and I got married young. And I see that not only was that a blessing to me, a part of that was God's plan bringing the pieces together to make me have accountability and assistance in the things that God wanted me to accomplish. And many times I believe it's a beautiful thing when a husband and a wife can serve together in partnership. It's a wonderful thing when we can serve together in ministry and use our lives together as a team. It may not be that. It may also be on occasion that when we do things, God just brings somebody alongside and, and another believer, another saint. But it's such wisdom that we see in the Lord's pattern of serving cooperatively in partnership because it provides, I said, that, that protection. It provides that, that safety from getting off track where a person can, hey, I, you know, I don't know if maybe, uh, I know you're thinking we should do this, but uh, and the person kind of sees a blind spot that you don't or they say, you know, I, I have a little bit of reservation in my spirit. Maybe we shouldn't do that. Well, okay, you know, then maybe we should step back here and pray. Or, and, and when somebody's discouraged and down, they hey, come in, don't, don't, don't be discouraged. Let's keep going and, and can pray for each other and partner together. And it's just a very beautiful thing how God works in these ways. Ecclesiastes 4 says, two are better than one for they have a good reward for their labor. That's what God says. Two are better than one. 
they have a good reward for their labor. And I encourage you as you serve the Lord, serve the Lord in partnerships. Whether it's God bringing you a spouse, whether it's serving together with your spouse, and as well, look for people you can partner with in ministry, those who God brings alongside of you to help complement the work. So Jesus sends two of them, not just one, the two of you, he says, verse 30, go over into the village opposite you and look now at this assignment and mission Jesus gives them. Having knowledge of all things, because he's God, knowing in advance, he prophetically tells them what they were to go do and exactly, exactly how they were to go about it in verse 30 and 31. He says, go over and where you enter, he says, you're going to find a cult when you come into that village. Nobody's ever sat on this before. And he says, I want you to untie it, bring it back. And if anybody questions you what you're doing, he says, say to them, hey, this is because the Lord has need of it. Now, this is pretty interesting because look how specific Jesus is with his instructions. And when he sends them out to do what he asks them, notice that Jesus gives them very adequate guidance. He tells them where to go. He tells them what they're going to find when they get there. He tells them what exactly they're supposed to do. He tells them what they're even to say. And he says, look, if this problem arises, don't worry because my favor is going to be with you and I'm going to open doors in front of you and this is how I want you to answer. And I mean, he just covers every little detail of exactly what they were going to need as he's sending them out. And because these men were walking directly in the will of the Lord, it seems that the word of the Lord to them was a lot more crystal clear. And you know what? When you are walking in the will of the Lord and you're cooperating with what God has asked you to do, you will find that there is a real clarity from God telling you things that you need to know along the way. The Bible says God is not the author of confusion. And if I'm confused about something and I don't seem to have clarity from the Lord, sometimes it makes me step back and say, is this my agenda and plan or is this the Lord's? Because when the Lord's directing us to do something, he doesn't just send us out there blind. It seems to me that when I'm walking in the will of the Lord, it's amazing how things become really clear. And the Lord gives specific, adequate direction that we need and guidance is supplied. And, and anything that Jesus asks us to do, he'll always give us instruction. He doesn't want us to go out there and make a mess. So when he's leading, he'll give direction. Psalm 32, 8 the Lord declares, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. And I will counsel you and watch over you. Hey, maybe the Lord is directing you to do something. Maybe he's guiding you to, to accomplish and he's asked you to do something. Listen, take heart. The, the Lord says, look, don't worry. I'll instruct you. I'll instruct you along the way. I'll teach you the way in which you should go. And I'll make sure, he says, to counsel you along the way and to watch over you. And whatever the Lord directs you in, take heart. He's going to guide you and counsel you and give you instruction. You just do what he's asking you to do and, and he'll direct you through the process and give you the necessary guidance that you need. Now, that being said, would you still agree it's kind of a pretty unusual thing that Jesus is asking them to do there. He just pulls these two guys aside and he says, look, Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go over and accomplish this little mission. And if you think about it, again, let's put ourselves in their sandals. They didn't get to read the whole rest of the account and know how it was all going to work out. 
They just get this instruction from the Lord. I wonder if the other disciples are hearing it too, thinking, glad he picked you, you know, and not us to go do that. Think about if you can kind of envision in your own mind, Jesus says, I want you to go to this village. You're going to see a, you're going to see a, a donkey, a colt there. It's going to be tied up. I want you to go over, just untie it, take it with you. If somebody questions you, say, hey, don't worry, the Lord needs this, and they're just going to let you go and it won't be a problem. Now, that kind of sounds unusual. Imagine if the Lord were to say to you, Maybe you're, let's say maybe you're going to go on a missions trip and the Lord says to you, listen, I want you to go over to such and such address and when you get there, you're going to see a 2013 BMW and the keys are going to be sitting inside of it and I want you to just open the door, turn the ignition and when the owner runs out and says to you, hey, what are you doing? With 911 on the line say, uh, the Lord needs it? Okay, bring it back. Bring it back when you're done in a couple weeks. I mean, that kind of gives you an idea. This is sort of what these disciples were having to do is they're kind of walking this out as Jesus sends them out. It's kind of an unusual thing. Would you agree? It'd be a little mentally challenging to accomplish what Jesus was asking them to do was going to cause them to have to obey that request and it would require faith believing the word of the Lord Literally. And acting upon it in faith, practically and obediently. And just saying, all right, Lord, <laughs> that sounds a little risky. Or that doesn't really line up with logic or reason, but uh, I'm going to trust and submit to the fact that if this is what you've told me to do, that somehow you're going to work out the details along the way. But it would really be challenging. And sometimes the Lord gives us requests I don't know how it works for you. Sometimes the Lord gives us requests. They defy our reason a little bit. Sometimes he asks us to do something that really goes outside of our little kind of responsible box a little bit. You know, we, 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 and, and it's great to be, I think, a responsible person and to be an orderly person. I think that is of the Lord. But I think God also has a sense of humor, especially for those of us who are overly responsible and orderly, where he says, oh, oh, you need to walk by faith. Because you need to figure everything out. So, and, and God on occasion will ask us to do something according to his plan or purpose that might stretch us a little bit. It might make us need to be bold in certain areas where we're not usually as bold. It might mean for us to have to be willing to go out of our comfort zone or maybe to do something you have never done before. Now, I've never done this before, Lord. I know. That's why I'm asking you to do it. Because you're going to have to depend on me. And you're going to have to walk by faith. And you're going to have to learn how as I lead you, I will work out all the details in front of you. And all I ask for you is to be faithful. All I ask for you is to walk in faith. Isaiah 55 says what? His ways are not our ways. Think in the Old Testament, you read the Old Testament prophets, some of the really peculiar things God asked people like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and some of the prophets to do. He asked them to do some really peculiar things. But yet it was something God was asking them to do. And the Lord likes to keep us walking by faith, trusting his word and letting us see he will act on our behalf. Again, I don't think we should be foolish and that Christians should be obnoxious and do things and blame them on God. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is sometimes his ways are our ways and he may ask us to do something that stretches us and takes us out of our comfort zone and it, it doesn't seem like the most logical way to do something or the most, per se, 
kind of responsible way and say, Lord, that seems a little irrational. People are going to think, it doesn't matter what people think. I want you to learn to obey me. I want you to learn to walk by faith and obey my voice and let me show you how I'll work on your behalf as you step forward in faith. Well, verse 32 says, they went as they were sent and notice found it just as he said to them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owner said, why are you loosing the colt? As would be expected. And Jesus told them what happened. And they said, the Lord has need of him. So again, imagine these guys walking through this event. Step by step, okay, they go. As they're walking to the village, are they talking about it, thinking, do you, do you really think that's all going to really happen? I mean, do you, do you really think when we go into that village, you really think there's going to be a cult there tied up? And they're, and they're kind of, they're processing, maybe they're not talking to each other. Maybe they're too embarrassed. They don't want to act unspiritual, you know, so they're trying to act like, eh, no problem, the Lord's going to work. And inwardly, they're like you and I, they're going, oh my goodness, how's this going to work out? And they're stressed out and they're thinking, how's this going to happen? And they show up and lo and behold, there's a cult. And there's that colt tied up and, and hey, look, there's a colt. Do you think we should go untie it? Well, he, that's what he said. Let's, all right, let's go do it. So they go over, they start to untie it, verse 33, and they, hey, what, what, what are you doing? That's our colt. What are you doing? What? It's like stealing somebody's vehicle. You know what? What are you doing taking our colt? And, and then here they are. They're feeling kind of embarrassed now, a little bit intimidated. And, and I have to wonder if, if they, one of them didn't say, do you think we should say it? Do you think we should? What are you doing, man? Get it. What are you doing? This guy's stealing my coat. Do you think we should say it? He said to say it. Uh, the Lord needs it. Oh, okay. That, go ahead, take it. You know, and just uh, this whole experience as they're walking it out. But the wonderful thing is they become a great example of what it means to obey Jesus and to listen to his voice, and to walk by faith, and despite any internal struggles that we wrestle with mentally, emotionally, practically, to do what the Lord asks, and to trust the Lord to take care of all the rest of the details, and let the outcome be taken care of by Jesus. That's the problem, man. We've we, we got to make sure and bank on that outcome. Let Jesus take care of the outcome. What a great example. They learned that Jesus was able to accomplish what they needed and fulfill whatever was necessary in every situation that he was directing them in. And the same is true for us. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. They got to see the Lord work in a very special way. And you know what? Perhaps the Lord has spoken something to one of you or to some of you recently and you're still debating, should I, shouldn't I? You know what? If Jesus has spoken to you, believe and walk out in faith and experience the blessing of seeing the Lord work on your behalf. And seeing the Lord work out the details and open the doors and give you the favor that he needs and, and, and you'll get an opportunity to see God work. So many times it's unbelief in our hearts and human reason that allows us and causes us to totally miss the wonderful works of the Lord that he would have done had we taken him at his word 
and walked out obediently the things that he directs us to do. Well, verse 35 says, they then brought this donkey back to Jesus and threw their own clothes onto the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, it says, many spread their clothes on the road. And again, the other accounts say they were also spreading palm branches on the ground. Now, again, as these events are unfolding, so also is the fulfillment of prophecy as these things are taking place. See, the reason Jesus requested specifically this colt, this donkey, was because prophecy said that was what was to take place on this specific day. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. The Jews knew that was a messianic description of when the Messiah came. And Jesus knew that too, and that's why he said, okay, I'm going to publicly present myself as the Messiah. Prophecy must be fulfilled. So he sends these two disciples out to get this particular colt, this foal, who for all of history... This was perfectly planned and Jesus now is fulfilling something that was spoken of in the word of God 500 plus years prior to this day that this was the exact way the Messiah would come lowly riding on a donkey entering in as the king into Jerusalem on that day. And Jesus is doing this not to fulfill the way things were done in that day but to fulfill the way that God had intended this plan and purpose would unfold. See, typically a king would not enter into a city on a donkey. In that day, traditionally, kings would enter in triumphantly on big, you know, stallions, strong horses that would be all decorated and, and, and it was looking very triumphant as they came in. And here comes Jesus very humbly and lowly riding in on this donkey. But again, Jesus was not trying to mock and, and model the patterns of the world. He was doing things according to the will and the word of God. So he's fulfilling prophecy and he was coming this first time as a lowly servant to provide salvation. So he comes according to Zechariah 9 in lowliness on this donkey. And notice as they bring the donkey to Jesus, verse 35 says that they then began to throw their clothes onto the coal and then it says they set Jesus on him. They now set Jesus onto this donkey and keep in mind what Jesus told them when they first went to fetch this particular colt. He says it's a colt upon which, what? No one has ever sat before. Don't miss that. Because that's interesting. I don't know about you. I'm not a farm boy. But typically unbroken animals usually buck and resist when you try and put somebody on it to ride it. Most untamed animals that have never been ridden before usually strongly resist being ruled over and someone riding on them. And now here is Jesus. He sits upon this unbroken colt and it doesn't buck and it doesn't resist. The very first time Jesus sits on it, it makes no effort to throw him off. It immediately submits and it's docile and it is stable underneath of him. And what an amazing thing, this unbroken colt recognized its creator. And therefore, it allowed Jesus to just rule over it in complete submission. And, you know, I look at this and by way of application, to me, it's another reminder of something else. It's a reminder of the fact that when Jesus is at work, 
He keeps things completely under control. When Jesus is at work, he keeps things completely under control. See, this was his thing. This was his plan. This was his purpose unfolding. And because it's his plan and his purpose unfolding, everything is completely under control. The things that may typically cause problems and throw things off course, when Jesus is doing it, we don't have to worry about that. When the Lord is doing it, the fears and the frets and the things that we have, well, what if this happens? And what if it gets thrown off course? Or what if it, you know, and when the Lord is at work, everything's under control, man. Because the authority of Jesus is riding over the whole thing. And Jesus will overrule any resistance or anything that would try and throw things off course. He's in complete control. And that's a wonderful consolation because Jesus will overrule any potential dangers or problems. And, and maybe that's something that you are concerned about or wrestling with in your own life or some situation. Oh no, what if it gets thrown off course? Or, or what if this or that? Listen, if Jesus is doing it and he... Relax. There's no resistance in the pit of hell that can overrule anything that Jesus is doing. He keeps things completely under control when his authority is where it's supposed to be. And how amazing. Here he's riding in. This animal doesn't buck. It doesn't resist. It just lets him ride on its back. It says, verse 36, as he went, many, again, were spreading clothes on the road. And in that culture, that was a way of just indicating submission to a king. It's kind of like rolling out the red carpet as they would throw their clothes down on the road in front of Jesus as he was entering in. And of course, again, the other accounts say there are palm branches being thrown down where we get the term Palm Sunday. In verse 37, as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, notice, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So at this point, now the worship, the public praise and adoration of Jesus Christ as a king begins to happen. And again, for the first time, Jesus publicly not just invites it, but he receives it. And he doesn't make anybody cease from acknowledging him as the king and as the one who came in the name of the Lord. Again, here we have Psalm 118, another messianic psalm from the Old Testament, being fulfilled. Psalm 118 says, This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, the Jews knew that Psalm, Psalm 118, spoke prophetically of the coming of the Messiah and Deliverer. That's why you see them here as Jesus is entering in on this donkey, cooperatively using the exact same phrases from Psalm 118. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. The idea is the King who comes is a representative of Jehovah God. Blessed is that King. Again, Matthew and Mark tell us in their account, people were also shouting as well, Hosanna, Hosanna. The idea is save now or save us. In other words, this is a clear proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah, the Deliverer, and the King. 
And that's why in verse 39, are you surprised, the Pharisees shouted out to the crowd saying to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Realizing what Jesus was doing, allowing the people to proclaim him as the Messiah, the Savior of Israel and the Deliverer, they begin to demand pretty strongly that Jesus rebuke what they see as error and wrongdoing. And in essence, they say, Jesus, make them stop. Make them be quiet. They're worshiping you as the king and this must be silenced. You must silence them from giving you this worship. Well, verse 40, I love Jesus' response. He answered and said to them, I tell you, if these should keep silent and stop worshiping, he says, the stones would immediately cry out. So he says, even if my disciples do, even if I did stop them from praising and worshiping me right now, he says, the very stones right here on the ground, they would pick up right where they left off and they would just break forth in praise and start to give me glory and honor that I deserve. You know, part of me, again, I just wish, I wish he could have made them stop. You just to hear and to see that miracle take place. These inanimate stones break forth and begin to praise and worship God. You know, on a recent trip to Israel, when I went there and we were in this area, as we were uh, walking down this particular location where Jesus would have been going through here on Palm Sunday, one of the pastors I was with, he said, you see those stones? Those are the stones there. So I kicked and broke one of those out of the, out of the, the bedrock area and, and brought it back, and it sits there in my office. And, it just, and I think, how cool is that, man, to have a stone? <laughs> One of those stones that would have miraculously broke forth, the same rock that's there in Israel, that would have broke forth and started singing praise and worship, the origin of Christian rock. That's a bad joke. But you know, it just would have started worshiping the Lord and praising Him. What a tremendous example in the Bible is a reminder of how incredibly worthy Jesus is of our worship. That Jesus would say here that even if people don't praise me, even if people don't sing to me, literal inanimate stones would begin to exalt and honor and give me the praise and worship that I deserve because of who I am. And again, listen, understand. It's not that the Lord is insecure and he needs for his own, you know, heavenly ego to have us you know, stroke his heavenly ego with praise and worship and honor. That's not the case at all. Because Jesus says, even if you don't participate, if need be, I can make lifeless, inanimate stones on the ground worship and exalt and, and honor me. And God's not hurting you know, because he doesn't have anyone to worship him. So what that tells me is this. Worship is an amazing privilege. To sing to Jesus and to praise the Lord, it's a privilege. It's a high honor that we have. Whereby the Lord actually receives my worship and he's blessed. It, when Jesus says the stones would worship me, that shows me, look, Lord, you don't need me. You don't need me to worship you. You allow me to worship you. You allow me to praise you and exalt you and honor you and to experience that expression of praise and adoration and glory to you. And see, when we don't, hear me, because I think this is applicable, when we choose not to praise Jesus and to worship Jesus 
with our voices, making melody in our hearts and singing to the Lord as we're commanded to do. When for whatever reasons of human inhibition, we hold back from praising and singing and worshiping the Lord, not only are we robbing Jesus of his glory, but we're robbing ourselves. We're robbing ourselves of a unique and wonderful privilege that God has given to us to exalt and to honor him and to experience what we do when we worship Jesus and praise the Lord. Kind of sad, isn't it, to think that sometimes inanimate stones are more willing and ready to worship Jesus than redeemed people? It's kind of a little convicting to think about that. That inanimate stones sometimes are, are more sensitive. Well, this event... Again, if you're a note taker, it may interest you. This event was one of the most amazing historical days ever. Because on top of other prophecy, you might want to write in your notes, Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. Because another prophecy was taking place this day and being fulfilled. Daniel 9, 25 says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem... Until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So God in Daniel chapter 9 gives a time frame for the Jews to look for the revelation of the coming of Messiah to them on the earth. And he tells them, once the command is given to restore and rebuild the city of Jerusalem which we have in Nehemiah, he says there will then be seven weeks, and that week there in the scriptures is a reference to a seven-year period. Seven, seven-year period. So he says seven weeks and 62 weeks, you add out the math, 483 years. Now when you take 483 years, you base it on a Babylonian calendar of 360 days in a calendar year, it comes out to 173,880 days. So God literally says, from the moment that the edict is issued on this earth, prophetically he tells them, from the moment the command is given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, there will be 173,880 days until the coming of Messiah to you as my people. Now we know from Nehemiah that the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem given by Artaxerxes was given on March 14th, 445 B.C. So if you take March 14th, 445 B.C., you do all the math and calculations, 173,880 days, it comes out to April 6th, 32 A.D. And we know historically that this day, Palm Sunday, was April 6th, 32 AD, as Jesus rode on a donkey into Jerusalem to the day specifically that God predicted Messiah the Prince would come. Now, if that kind of stuff doesn't make you want to fall down and worship Jesus, you must be hard as a rock. I mean, you, you must have a stone heart. That's incredible. God gave them a specific way to identify in the scriptures to the day that Messiah would come and present himself to them. And the tragic thing is because, just like many in this day, there was an ignorance of scripture and a lack of understanding of prophecy, they completely missed what the Lord was doing in their day. 
Their ignorance of Scripture led to spiritual ignorance and a failure to identify the Lord's work in their present day, in their present hour. You know, God says in Hosea 4, 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. See, because this same crowd, a week later, what would they be yelling? Crucify him. Crucify him. We will not have this man as king over us. Why? Because of lack of biblical understanding. They had a wrong perception of their day and they had developed their own ideas of what they thought things should be and how they thought things should go. And they wanted Jesus, remember, to be a political, military king. And when Jesus did not work according, listen to me, when he did not work according to their patterns and their preferences, and he didn't do things the way they wanted him to do things, they rejected him and they became blinded and they missed the very work of God right in their very presence in that very hour and refused Jesus. Well, verse 41 says, again, Jesus knowing what was going to take place in this refusal, that as he drew near to the city, it says he then began to weep. The, the language indicates to audibly sob. Imagine, everybody else is, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and they're all worshiping and, and excited and they look over and all of a sudden Jesus just starts to sob. And he just starts to convulse as he's looking over the city of Jerusalem because he realizes the rejection that will take place. Here is one of two recorded occasions where Jesus, listen, especially the guys, Jesus, the perfect man, wept. And he wept publicly. John chapter 11, at the funeral of Lazarus, Jesus, it says, wept over the grief and pain that he saw death was bringing to all the people around and it, and it so broke his heart as he saw the results of sin and, and how death is so hard to cope with and it just it crushed him inside as he saw people grieving at the death of a loved one. And here again we see Jesus now weeping what? Over the spiritual condition of a city and the spiritual condition of people that he cared deeply about. He was brought to tears over the moral decline and the spiritual dullness of those who he cared very tremendously about. And I think Jesus still cares greatly about cities and people and, and his heart is still broken. And I think the heart of Jesus and us, God help me to, to give me a greater sensitivity that I would be moved to concern, burdened, weeping, burdened in my heart because of spiritual dullness or moral decline in someone's life, that my heart would be like the heart of Jesus more. Here's Jesus weeping over Jerusalem's inhabitants and he says, verse 42, if you had known even you this day the things that would make for your peace, but now, he says, they are hidden from your eyes. Again, what was one of the main things he's weeping over? Missed spiritual opportunity of their missing the experience of God. They wanted social and political peace. They wanted external rest in their circumstances. And Jesus came to bring spiritual peace and internal rest inside of their hearts. He's the Prince of Peace. And he wants to rule on the throne of people's hearts. And he wants to give people internal rest to resolve the struggles and battles within their heart. The struggles with sin and self-will. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, me and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
Jesus wanted to have that internal rest. And because of that, he says, oh, if you had only known what would really bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. And I can't see how many times Jesus, in the same way, must look at people and, and, and he sees us and he says, you're seeking peace in all the wrong things. It's right before your eyes. The peace you need isn't circumstantial. You need peace of the battle in your heart. You got a battle going on within because of self-will and says, oh, if you'd only see it. And now it's hidden from you. You're missing it. And how his heart was so grieved over that. You know, in spiritual life, it is never wise to ignore the light that God gives to us because one of the consequences of ignoring the light that God gives to us when he does is we become blinded to what's really right and what we really need. And that was the case with the people in Jerusalem. He says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you on every side. So he prophetically sees ahead to the days of 70 AD when Rome would come and build an embankment around the city and lay siege. And horrific events would happen. He says, they will level you, you and your children, to the ground and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And in 70 AD, they'd surround the city. A siege of 143 days would take place They'd become desperate. Cannibalism would break out within the city. Parents would begin to eat their own children for survival and desperation. Over 600,000 Jews would be put to death. More thousands taken captive. And they would destroy the city and the temple, not leaving one stone upon another. And to this day still, there are still stones there that are a silent testimony to the very prophetic things Jesus said would happen. Human devastation that was unthinkable. And all for one, really one main reason why. Because Jesus says, you did not know the day of your visitation. Because they did not recognize the plan of the Lord for their lives. They opted for their own and they missed God's best. And worse than that, they experienced the consequences of their own self-will continuing to be in charge of their own lives and it brought tremendous unthinkable devastation into their lives you know this morning as we look at this together what a great time to evaluate our own lives and to ask how responsive am i to what the lord is doing in my life because i think to this day still jesus he visits us and he has plans and purposes for our life and he comes and he he he, he invades and interrupts all of our lives continuously, continuously because he's got a plan and he wants to do things and he's got our best in mind. But it's a cooperative thing. And we have to recognize the day of our visitation and respond to it and be responsive to what the Lord's doing. Hey, are you being responsive? What's the Lord trying to do in your life? Are you being responsive to it? Don't miss God's best. Ask the Lord, what are you doing? Lord, what is it? Show me. And maybe you already know, but more important, respond. By faith, respond and cooperate. Don't miss God's best for what he wants to do for you. Shall